God, we pray you would reveal yourself to us this morning. May we get a glimpse of who you are. May we learn to follow you and your ways in our world. Amen. Grab yourselves a seat. We've got a new baby. Welcome, new little baby. It's nice to see you. Trying to remember her name. Billy. That's right. And that's short for something quite cool, isn't it? Welcome. Lovely to have our first girl. (laughs) Lovely to have you here. Today I want to talk about um, a passage in the Bible that I think is quite a tricky one to understand, and um, as I was reading this and pondering this this week, I saw the harrowing documentary on TVNZ On Demand, Heaven and Hell, about the Centrepoint community, and um, I want to contrast what is happening with Jesus to that community, and what can we learn from this, and kind of... You can, you can see, I think, from this, some of the reaction that the religious people start having to Jesus and perhaps understand where they're coming from. But I really want to talk about how can we learn to discern good from bad, particularly in these situations where you have a charismatic leader. How can you discern who is a good charismatic leader, who is a bad charismatic leader? How do you know what is good and proper in this. So I'm going to read you a passage now, just prior to where I'm going to read to you. Jesus has gone into the field with his disciples and they've picked grains of wheat to eat on their day of rest, which is against their law. It's against their religious law, which is also the law of the country. And it upsets the social leaders of the day, the societal leaders, the religious leaders, and they're like, If Jesus really was from God, he wouldn't go about breaking the law like this. And so they haul him in, and they tell him off, and they create this picture about him, and then his family, I think, are feeling kind of the the shame from this. And they try and, you know, come on, Jesus, stop, stop behaving like this. I want to read the story and then reflect on it. Um, one day, Jesus, one time, Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. And when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. And Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by, a, by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth. All sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. 
There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and brothers are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So here we have Jesus going up against the social norms of the day, the cultural expectations, and he's challenging them. And he's trying to say, you know, all these things that you've grown up with, these expectations, they're just not right. Throw, throw these shackles away. Stop thinking of God inside the box. Start thinking of him differently. And to the point where he's like, you know, I'm here to create this new community this new family, and anyone who does my will becomes part of a family. Now, when I was reading this and pondering this, I became disturbed because I'm like, this is the exact sort of technique that Bert Potter used in Centrepoint. He told everybody that the expectations they'd grown up, that society had placed on them were wrong, and all they could do or needed to do was throw them to the side, and they were going to create this new family. And it made me think, so how do you know when you've got just this evil man like Bert Potter who ruined, you know, hundreds of people's lives? I watched this documentary because I've known three families that were caught up in the Centrepoint community who had their lives destroyed by what he did. And for those of you who are not aware, he ended up going to prison for um, child sex offences, along with, I think there were eight in total that went to um, prison for this, the leaders. So it was just this horrible community of exploitation of children. And the big thing was like, everything that you've heard about sex is wrong, you should just be free to, to do whatever you want and you know, throw off those cultural expectations. They took drugs. You know, there was, if you watch the documentary, it's harrowing, but just, just horrendous abuse happening. So this evil, evil man, but the words he used, you know, throw off your cultural expectations. We're here for a new family. Come and find belonging. We're going to change the world. We're doing things. We've got this inner wisdom. We know better. It's like this is, this is kind of the language of religions. So how can you be discerning and know when you've got a horrible, evil man like Bert Potter or when you've got somebody who you should listen to who is really worthwhile? Now, in pondering all of this, there's a framework that I find really helpful. So I want to just step outside that question for a minute and talk you through. Um, A psychologist called James Fowler wrote this book called Stages of Faith, and in it, it outlines how humans, whatever faith or religion they're part of, tend to go through these stages. And I think you can kind of see what is happening with Jesus' followers, what was happening with Bert Potter's followers, because there's predictable patterns. And in it, he's got six stages. Here we've got an extra um, zero added, but I want to run you through kind of what they are. So stage one is the first one you can really discern, which is generally in toddler or preschool years, where your spirituality is defined mostly by parental behavior and attitudes, and fantasy and reality often become confused at this stage. So you think of, most kids think um, Santa Claus is real, the tooth fairy is real, there is a lack of distinction, you know, between the um, (laughs) guys looking at me like, what? (laughs) 
we'll have a chat later. <laughs> you know, so there's this kind of, whatever you're told is true, whatever your parents tell you is true. Then there's, we've got stage two, the mythical, literal, and people here begin to think logically and tend to understand the stories of their faith community in extremely literal ways. Again, and then this is our school age. Uh, number three is where most people stay for most of their lives. You sit in number three, and this is where you hold the belief system of your um, community. So people um, find it difficult to think outside of their religious box. They tend to accept the authority of their faith tradition absolutely. This is not necessarily a bad thing. This is where most people will comfortably sit their whole lives. And you think in traditional communities, you'll see that everyone holds a shared understanding of the world. In Western culture, we have this tradition of, you know, you should question. You should ask uh, penetrating, you know, thoughtful questions about your faith. And so it's not uncommon in Western culture for people to find themselves in stage four so it's never before probably young adulthood, but that's where it might start happening. This is where people begin to critically examine and question their beliefs. During this stage, people often become disillusioned with their religious traditions. Now, a lot of you may have been in a church or other religious community, and you got to sort of young adulthood or mid-twenties or early thirties, and you stopped attending. This is typical behavior of stage four, where you're asking lots of questions, and it's not bad. It is not bad to get to that point where you have a lot of questions. Stage five is described as a place where people begin to recognize the limits of logic and accept paradox or accept things they don't understand. They often return to sacred stories, but with an appreciation for mystery. And then finally, stage six, which is considered extremely rare, and most people never get to stage six. Um, those who reach this final rare stage are able to fully integrate their faith into their lives, serving others and valuing community over self. And this is, people say, it's someone like Mother Teresa, who gives her whole life in the service of the world around her. So this is, um, I think, from the 80s, a psychologist reflecting on people's stages of faith. Now, I think this is also quite helpful to think about in terms of worldview or the culture that you find yourself in. And so what happens as people get to a certain point and they start asking questions? Is what I have grown up with, is everything my parents taught me, all there is to it? Maybe it's not all true. Maybe there's something else going on and people start to push against their cultural expectations. So in the story today, this is kind of what Jesus is doing with his followers. He goes into the field, they start plucking, plucking wheat. His followers are probably like, you can't do this. This is against our religious law. And Jesus is like, are you sure you understand it properly? This is his constant challenge. He's telling them lots of stories. Are you sure you fully understand God? Maybe God is bigger than the box that you've put him in. And I think the people who ended up in the center point community with Bert Potter were asking these questions about culture. 
this individualistic way of living where it's all about money and getting the perfect job, maybe this isn't the only way. And in comes Bert Potter. Come and move into this community and we're going to live this radical new way. And one of the big things was, you'll see when you watch the documentary if you do, um, they just had to have sex with everybody. And that was one of the things to kind of strip down um, expectations and cultural prejudices. They had these grisly parties where they got high on ecstasy and um, this is what happened, this horrible sort of situation unfurled that involved a whole lot of exploitation of children and of adults in the community too. So here is my question as I'm reading this reading for the week and watching this grisly documentary and realising with horror, there's these horrible similarities here, but I believe that Jesus is the truth and I believe that Bert Potter was a horrible man. So how do you begin to discern where the difference is? Because I think it is a good thing to start asking questions about what you assume about your own culture, what you assume about your religious tradition. This is not bad to begin to ask these questions. But where is it going to lead you? And who are you going to follow when you start asking those questions? How do you protect yourself and your family? So I want to talk about three um, principles that I think are good when you are wondering, is this person good or are they from the devil, as people were initially accusing Jesus of? And these three things are, is this community serving others or serving themselves? Are there healthy boundaries or this expectation there should be no boundaries? Is there servant leadership or controlling leadership? I think it's helpful to think of this both in terms of that centre point community, but also we've got Gloria Vale on the West Coast, which is in the paper relentlessly at the moment as the police are investigating them. How do you know when that is a good, healthy community or when it's not good? So this is something to, uh, to think about. So the first one, serving others or serving self. I think when you reflect on uh, the centre point community, what was happening there, there was a lot of language that I think would appeal to Western ears, which is about you become self-fulfilled. You become all you can be. You throw off the expectations your family has given you. You are, you know, and it's you, 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 or me, 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 me. And it became, I think, incredibly narcissistic. And if you watch the, the documentary, there's these four adults who are part of the community. And there's no real point that they acknowledge that it was damaging for the vulnerable and the weak in their community. It's still, they talk very much about themselves and what they got out of it. It's very me-centred. So I think that this is the first danger and the first thing to look for. What sort of language is being used? Are, you, are they serving others, putting others first, or serving themselves? I think this is one where perhaps at a first glance at Gloria Vale, you know, they live their whole lives giving everything away, working hard and serving others. They don't serve beyond their own community, but it certainly is a probably different language than the centre point one, which is all narcissistic. It's about me, if only I could throw off these boundaries that have been given by the external world. 
So it's interesting, I think you need other things to look for. The second one, healthy boundaries versus no boundaries. In the Centrepoint community, there's this person being interviewed and they said that Bert Potter, the leader, had come to them and said, can you go and prostitute yourself in Auckland in order to get money to keep the community going? And she said, no, I'm not going to do that, that's going too far. But here, here is this community where it's kind of like, you should have no boundaries. The leader can tell you what to do and they certainly had no boundaries around children, or healthy boundaries around there. And they had no boundaries around, you know, long-term, monogamous, faithful relationships in the group. You had to put all that aside. And it was just a free-for-all. Sometimes people look at religions, and they say religions are just all about rules. It's all about, you know, just God is a killjoy and doesn't want you to do all the fun things. I've got this nine-year-old, and sometimes I have this joke with her, it's like, I don't really know the context, but every so often I crack a joke and I'm like, maybe tonight you should choose whatever time you want to go to bed. Maybe you could eat whatever you want for tea. Maybe you could watch whatever screen you want. Maybe you could do whatever you wanted to do. And it freaks her out. She's like, Mom, don't say that. I hate it when you say that. Don't do that. It's really terrifying. And I think it's interesting to see in a kid this desire to have boundaries. You're in control, Mum. I need you to be in control. I need to know that I have a bedtime. I'm going to push that bedtime to the absolute limit. I'm just going to go past the extreme with that bedtime. I am not going to eat the food you give me. You know, there's going to be battles all the way about these boundaries, but they're there. And I think this is this sense, too, that God gives us boundaries, not because he wants to ruin all our fun, but to protect us, to love us, to give us security. This is the edge. Stay within these boundaries. This is going to be life-giving and fulfilling for you. I think in our culture, which is sex-obsessed, there's a sense that, you know, any boundaries around sex are just silly. Whereas here you see what happens when you take that to the extreme. People get hurt. People suffer. God gives us boundaries. There is this expectation that you commit to one person, that you love them, that you have this you know, lifelong uh, commitment. Now, we don't always, because we're human, manage to fulfill that. There's an acknowledgement of that too, that we are just human beings. We often fall short. We might not hit that goal, but here's this intention. God lovingly wants to provide this safe place for us. And he allows us to come back again and again and again, to give it another shot. Here's God's hope and expectation. Have another go, have another go, have another go. So this is the, the second one, the boundaries. I also think when you start looking at somewhere like Gloria Vale, there is no boundaries around personal property or money. Now I think in our culture we get you know, obsessed with our money and we fill our pockets and I'm never going to share our money. You know, I don't want to be generous. I don't want to give my money away. But there is this notion that we can you know, practice stewardship of our own resources. And somewhere like Gloria Vale, they give all their money into Central Pool. There's no sort of boundaries around that. And there's no boundaries around personal property. There is 
a place for healthy boundaries around your body, your property, your finances. I think sometimes we go too far. Sometimes we never want someone to come into a house. We don't want to share what we have. But there is, it is okay to have boundaries around that. And the third one is servant leadership versus controlling leadership. And this is, I think, the biggie in situations like this. When we look at Jesus, we see somebody who gave his life away. He was eventually killed because the religious authorities couldn't handle what he was saying. But he lived his life in service to other people. He could have, I'm sure, become a teacher of note and gathered a big following and gathered a lot of money and built himself a house and you know, sat on a throne and got people in to come and you know, worship him and give them sagely advice. But he didn't. He wandered around the countryside. He healed the sick. He welcomed the outcast. He taught that God loves every person. And he gave his life away for the sake of this much bigger dream and vision of God's new community here on earth. I think one of the the key things when you look, is this person good or are they evil, is this notion, are they being a servant leader or are they controlling? The story of Bert Potter is somebody who dictated to people, this is what you have to do, this is what I need you to do, this is how it's going to be, and in places like Gloria Vale, the same. Very controlling leadership. You must live this way. If you don't live this way, you can get out. You'll lose all your resources as you go. So here is this challenging passage. The religious, the cultural leaders of the day look at Jesus and say, he's evil. He's from the devil because he's challenging everything we know. When Bert Potter emerged, there were people who said the same. He's evil. He's not good. How do you know when somebody is evil? I think, I, I think in my own situation, there's some speakers that you come across, or authors, um, leaders, and I'm interested in them. They seem curious, but you can peel back and look at the lifestyle, and then you discover there they are with their private jet, their mansion, and you start to question, actually, maybe this person isn't embracing the lifestyle or the values that I espouse. Again, this question, how can you tell? When people are trained to spot counterfeit money, there's this interesting process they go through. They are not given counterfeit money to look at, to show all the different ways people fake money. They are given the real thing, and they spend hour after hour, day after day, memorizing every line on the real thing, till they know it inside and out. And then when they come across a fake, at a quick glance they can tell, this is fake because I know the real thing inside and out. And here's an invitation. Jesus came to bring life and truth and hope to us. He lived the perfect life. He was a servant leader. He welcomed the lost, the outcast, the sick, those on the margins. And we are invited to study the life of Jesus, to know him inside and out, so that we are not fooled or tricked by people who come up and claim to have the next greatest truth, 
the next greatest insight, this new lifestyle to live. But even more than studying Jesus, we're also invited to personally get to know him. The presence of Jesus is alive and continues to live. And we can chat to Jesus. We can talk. We can ask for wisdom, for insight. Jesus, show me the truth. Show me your way. Show me your life. We are just human. We are fallible. We are gullible. We get tricked by an emerging leader who tells us, this is the new way. Throw off these old shackles. Jesus also challenges us to throw off some of our expectations around who God loves and who God doesn't love, our expectations on what the good life really is. We need to learn to listen to Jesus' voice, to hear him speaking to us, and to respond. So let's pray together. Jesus, you are good and kind. We see in your day people misunderstood your message. They cast what you had to say as evil. Help us not to fall into the same trap. Help us to have ears to hear and a heart ready to receive what it is you want to say to us. Where you are challenging us, calling us to something new. And God, give us wisdom and discernment as we hear messages all around us, from the media, from our family, from our friends, from people who claim leadership in our world. May we know what is good and true, and may we discern what is unwise. Come and speak to us, Jesus. Come and dwell in us, so that we may be full of your love, your hope, and your goodness. And give us motivation and courage to learn more about you. May we be people who understand your way, understand your teaching, and may it be that that fills us and shapes our worldview. We ask that the Holy Spirit would come and transform us. Amen.